The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. This time every Monday, Dr. Coleman Gallagher is with us, the planetary geomorphologist from the UCD School of Geography for the Hard Shoulders Guide to the Galaxy. And it was exactly that last week. There was a galactic focus. We were talking about the Milky Way. Really fascinating stuff. And it's available as a podcast. If people missed it, uh, I would recommend going back and listening to it. We are focusing more on our own uh, parish uh, this week, our own corner of the Milky Way, the solar system, and the planet next to us, to be precise, Mars. Uh, Coleman, very easy question then to, to kick things off. Is there life on Mars? That's the million dollar question. There's no conclusive evidence of it, but there's some inconclusive evidence that there might be, and we don't know about the past. I mean, the the rovers on Mars at the moment are looking for conditions that may have been conducive to life in the past. Um, uh, the, The Mars 2020 rover is actually looking for evidence of life itself. Um, so that's a really difficult question to answer. In- inconclusive, but there is no strong evidence for life. Okay. What what um, what was the process, or what was the point in time when we really started to understand the the red planet more? I mean, from Copernicus onwards, we had kind of telescopes in 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 the sense that we understand them. But you know, there, there was a kind of I suppose there was a kind of a Victorian era of kind of Vernian uh, imaginosity when it came to, to yeah. Mars that there was kind of these labyrinthine cities built below the surface. And um, I, I assume it was the kind of the the the, the predecessors to Rover, and it was uh, kind of the, these um, telescopes or these satellites we sent flying off through the galaxy that well, began w- to put page to Jules Verne. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, the the telescopes of the 1700s really started to show details on Mars, um, and they started to show what are called albedo differences. They, they are the amount of sunlight reflected from a planetary surface, so whether it looks dark or bright. And that gave rise to the idea that Mars may have continents and oceans. And then as telescopes improved in the 19th century, people started to speculate that there were even smaller uh, features and including linear features. Um, and the original observations of those features were done by Schiaparelli and Antoniadi. And in Italian, they call them canali. They, they didn't mean to call them channels or canals in English. I should have said they, they meant to call them channels, but not canals. They were mistranslated mm. from channel to canal. Okay. And then people started to say, well, canals are artificial channels so therefore and the wrong end of the stick was picked up Brilliant. and in particular a guy called Percival Lowell who was working with the the world's largest telescope at the time uh, at a place called Yerkes Yerkes Observatory in um, near the Great Lakes in America he was using a, a telescope with a very long focal length a big lens the biggest lens that was ever produced as far as I know about 40 inches across but very long and it was able to resolve very small features, but it also, with the eyepieces he was using, also introduced artifacts, um, literally um, uh, imagination, literally visual kind of um, artifacts that that the brain constructed out of uh, point-like features, joining them up artificially. Mm. Um, and they turned out to be completely wrong. They were shown to be wrong pretty quickly, but the the kind of uh, the idea was out there, and then mm. you get 
um, the novel War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, which was which was really meant to be a, a novel about colonialism, but turned out to be a novel more about science fiction. <laughs> and so, by the early twentieth century, the the the, the idea that um, there was life on Mars became almost, you know, the doctrinaire. And this was built, in fact, from two centuries before when the idea of life on Mars really started to spring up with the early telescopic observations. So it was kind of completing that circle, if you like. Yeah, it's, it's a, a fascinating history. What uh, do you need for life on a oh, planet? Most people would say water and an atmosphere, first off. Um, but they're not enough. Um, Mars has um, evidence of water going back to its very earliest days. There are, in its oldest terrains that that date from about 4.5 to 3.7 billion years ago, there is ample evidence of water in the, in the shape of river channels, maybe even in the shape of a, of a northern hemisphere ocean, um, certainly in the shape of craters that had lakes in them. So, for example... Uh, Perseverance, the Mars 2020 rover, is in a is in a crater at the moment, looking at sediments laid down in a lake, and that includes sediments brought in by a river channel, which is still there. Mm. So the idea of water is is absolutely fine. Um, it's not enough, though, and at the moment the atmosphere of Mars is as good as a vacuum. It, it's it's got about an average of six millibars of pressure, as opposed to Earth's average pressure, which is a thousand millibars. So six millibars of pressure is about the equivalent of um, at least um, 25,000 metres on Earth, probably more like 50,000 metres. That's halfway to what we call space. So it's as good as, you know, you couldn't survive in it. You'd die in in seconds. Even still, though, um, there is evidence that some microbes can live in an atmospheric pressure pretty close to Martian atmospheric pressure. And in fact, lab experiments at Martian atmospheric pressures, uh, Martian temperatures, uh, and other Martian conditions, some bacteria survived, one one strain of bacteria out of 26. Um, But they survived. And if if we found one strain of bacteria on Mars, that would be revolutionary. So they are the minimum the, the environment needs to be kind. It can't be aggressive. It can't be chemically aggressive. It can't be aggressive in terms of radiation. Unfortunately, Mars is aggressive in both counts. Um, the solar UV is extremely high. There's no ozone layer. Uh, and the amount of radiation from cosmic sources and the amount of heavy uh, particles, particularly protons from the mm. sun, is extremely high. So at the surface of Mars... Um, the surface of Mars would be sterilized pretty quickly. Um, it's possible, the estimates are that, for example, at a certain depth, not far below the surface, some types of Earth bacteria could survive for hundreds to maybe thousands of years, maybe even up to 18,000 years. And you say, well, that's pretty good. But the, the trouble is Mars has been losing its atmosphere uh, for 3.2 billion years to the extent now that there's no ozone left, there's hardly any atmosphere left. And 18,000 years over um, 3 billion years is, is totally trivial. So the likelihood is that the surface of Mars is sterilized by radiation. The other problem is that there are chemicals in the, uh, what, what the Americans call soil, what really should be called regolith, because soil is, is, a, is a mineral compound or a mineral collection with bacteria in it. It can be up to 50 or more percent bacteria, strictly speaking. So it's not soil. 
Um, but there is a compound called perchlorate, which is um, a molecule made of chlorine and four oxygen atoms. It's mm. extremely reactive. Um, it, it, in fact, is a fantastic energy source, which is one of the things that life needs. It needs some way of metabolizing to create energy to live. But the trouble is that perchlorate um, is generally extremely toxic to microorganisms on Earth, not to all, but to most. And the other problem is that on Mars, in the presence of solar UV and in the presence of um, um, uh, peroxide, the perchlorate becomes really nasty. Um, so it's it's a big problem. That if I could just finish this one, because it's an yeah. interesting one. There is a bit of a paradox, though, because perchlorate in the Martian regolith, that lots of Martian regolith contains ice. And we know that that ice, even at, at present, maybe up to uh, 100,000 years ago or so, uh, melted and created water and created channels and created pattern ground, the kind of thing we see when permafrost thaws in the Arctic summer. Mm. And the best explanation for that in the current conditions on Mars, which have been pretty much stable for the past few hundred thousand years, um, is that the perchlorate has allowed the ice to melt because perchlorate reduces the freezing point of ice to as, to as much as minus 70 Celsius, for example. The most common perchlorate on Mars will do that. So perchlorate both is a, is, is a kind of, it would, could be conducive to life, but in the presence of solar UV, at least at the surface of Mars, it is lethal to life. So maybe it allows life to exist deep where the permafrost that contains ice is melting. There, there, uh, there, there have also been stories then about meteorites from Mars with yeah. life on them. Yeah, the famous, the, the, the famous meteorite called ALH84001. Uh, ALH stands for the Allen Hills in Antarctica. Um, most meteorite hunters go to the Antarctic ice caps because meteorites tend to be dark and the ice is white, so they stick out like a sore thumb. And on, on the top of the ice cap, where that's there are, interesting, that's yeah, it's practical it, consideration. It's, it's practical. Yeah. And remember, the ice cap sits above mountains. It's 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 three thousand meters thick mm. on on average. So there are very few peaks that stand above it. So any rocky stuff on the surface has to have come from the atmosphere. It can't have come from weathering of, of mountains or anything. Mm. So they tend to go there or they go to the Libyan desert, for example, where the same kind of things are true. And uh, that particular meteorite, when it was opened, it had strange structures, the, the microscopic, I mean, absolutely tiny, smaller than any known bacteria. But these segmented looking structures, they almost looked like segmented worms. Um, but the interpretation that the people looking at them put on them was that they were tiny bacteria. And uh, there were some other potential biosignatures in that meteorite, but that, that was the main one. Uh, they, uh, working for NASA, so with, with the NASA badge on their shirts, they announced it to the world and there, was a, a, there were a lot of press conferences and so on. But ultimately it was decided by... by uh, the world scientific community who who looked at that meteorite and thought about it and scratched their heads that in fact this was more likely to be mineral rather than biological and so that meteorite I'm afraid has bitten the dust oh. in terms of of showing life there were other meteorites were there, there were several other meteorites there are there are um I'm not sure several hundred if not more than a thousand at this stage meteorites that we know came from Mars um they would have been blasted off the surface of Mars by uh, large meteorite impacts on Mars, mm. they would have 
orbited the sun for millions of years. I mean, ALH 84001 is about 4.5 billion years old and it was it was lifted off the surface of Mars hundreds of millions of years ago at least, if not more than, if not into the billions of years. So it sailed around the solar system until one day it, it entered the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, and so there are, there are quite large collections of Martian meteorites. Some of them contain interesting stuff, um, either um, things that look like... Uh, Bacteria, again, tiny bacteria. Other structures as well, known as ichnofossils. And ichnofossils, the, the word ichno comes from the Greek word for foot. So um, on Earth, where you see dinosaur footprints, that would be an example of that type of yeah. fossil. It wouldn't be a jaw or a leg bone, but it would be an imprint made yes. by a dinosaur. And uh, in some meteorites, there are kind of uh, hockey stick shaped microtubules that look like they may have been produced by. Uh, by bacteria, um, making, uh, metabolizing sediments in lakes and making little structures out of them. And then the structures being filled by microscopic crystals later on over the eons. Whether that's the case or not, that's the open question. But th that's the way that some people interpret them. Again, mm. Highly inconclusive, I'm afraid. Listen, another fascinating uh, addition uh, to the Hard Shoulders Guide to the Galaxy with Dr. Coleman Gallagher, planetary geomorphologist from the UCD School of Geography. Coleman will be back at the same time next week. Uh, we're going to get this up as quick as we can as a podcast. And like I say, last week's uh, episode about the Milky Way is already up there and I would recommend people listen to it. Coleman, an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks a million for coming into us. We'll get your business news after this very quick break. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.